Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me are my co-hosts, Tessa. Hello. And Andy. Hello. Surprise! It's... Spooktober! Bride of Spooktober. Bonus episode! That's right. Even though we're slouching toward Thanksgiving, we're not done with scary movies just yet. In this episode, Tessa duct tapes a gun to a flamethrower, Andy watches Twilight for Boys, and I forgot what I'm doing for some reason. So while I try to remember that, Tessa, what did we watch this week? I feel like for some people, they're going to know immediately based on the duct tapes a gun to a flamethrower, but I watched the film Aliens from 1986, which is a direct sequel to the 1979 Alien. Okay, so anybody who's seen this movie is going to also immediately want to know. Theatrical or director cut? This is important. Yes, I watched the director's cut because I was told by everybody that that is the cut that you should watch, including James Cameron, who actually directed it. If you turn on, did we watch it off of? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so we watched it on Blu-ray, and actually he pops up at the beginning before the film starts and is like, this is the version you should see. So I listened to director James Cameron. And for once, that was okay. And for once, that was a good idea. So I don't actually know. (laughs) There's one time. Where a woman has listened to James Cameron and it's been okay. Yeah. (laughs) So we're going to talk a little, I'm going to talk about aliens this week. But first I do have to, to mention, of course, that if you haven't seen the film Alien, there are going to be some spoilers of that film in this conversation. Also, if you haven't heard our dear friend Megan's review of Alien from last year, please go, please go and listen to that episode. She gives. She watched Alien for the first time last year and gave a really, really good discussion of it and review. But I am talking about the next film, Aliens. This one cannot be just a rehash of the original, right? There has to be something new and different, yes? Well, judging by the title, I would guess that there's more than one. There's more than one alien in this one! Yeah, so... It, it actually isn't a rehash of the original, which I appreciated. But basically, this film, like I said, it's a direct sequel. It picks up with Sigourney Weaver's character, the famous Ellen Ripley, being rescued after the events of the first one. If you'll remember from the first one, she ejects herself from the ship with Jonesy the cat, who I am very happy to say survived the events of the first one and survived the events of this movie, too. Final cat. Final cat. And Jonesy is great. Jonesy is like this just giant orange tabby cat and like just not the kind of cat you'd think would be in a scary movie. Jonesy's great. Jonesy is also responsible for one of the jump scares in Alien. Yes, exactly. So Ripley is picked up. Ripley and Jonesy are both picked up in cryosleep. She wakes up finding out that she's actually been asleep and floating in space for 57 years. So it is, does take place long after the events of the first one, but for her, it's actually just felt like it's been, you know, a few hours. Her, She finds out that her daughter has, in fact, died, you know, in the intervening time, so that's obviously very sad. And, of course, the Weyland-Yutani Corporation, who are the villains of the first one, besides, of course, the titular xenomorph alien... Who is the real? Who is the? Real who is villain? the real villain? That is what this. That what these set of films want us to ask. They don't believe her. They think that she just went insane and like there was a problem with her android from the first one and like something terrible happened, but that she doesn't know what she's talking about. Especially because when she tells them to check out the planet that they went to, LV four. Two, six, they say, oh, there's actually a colony there now, and they've never had any problems. So let me ask you a question, though. So at this point in the movie, at the very beginning, I'm curious to know, what, did you think that when they were questioning her, because you mentioned they just assumed that she's insane, I, I, I wonder, did they think she was insane, or was there something else? Did they think she had done a, I don't know, something else like corporate espionage? 
or a shining did she did she just go crazy with space madness it's interesting because the one of the things that this film does really well is to really obscure what the interest of the Weyland Yutani Corporation's interest in the xenomorph is and in aliens in general and technology. It's really like this corporation gone wrong. So it's hard to tell at the beginning whether they actually believe her and are just covering up their own mistakes or if they see this as an opportunity or if they think she's been doing corporate espionage. It's really, really difficult to tell. All I can tell you is that there is a character who introduces himself as a company man, but don't let you fool that. He introduces himself as a company man, but don't let that fool you. I'm actually a nice guy, which is how you know he's the villain of the story. Who played that character, by the way, Tessa? Paul Reiser plays that character. For those of you who are younger than me, you might remember Paul Reiser as Helen Hunt's co-lead in the 90s sitcom Mad About You. But... Again, if you're my age, you might also remember him as one of the titular two dads in the sitcom My Two Dads, which is how I know Paul Reiser. This is a moment. I'm like, the dude from My Two Dads is the bad guy in this movie. Wow. I would really have thought it was uh, Mother Nature, but... I do want to bring up, uh, you, you mentioned uh, her daughter, Amanda. Yes. I, I do want to uh, bring up that canonically, Amanda had her own run-in with the xenomorphs in her attempt to find out what happened to her mother. You can find out all of this in the video game Alien Isolation, uh. where you play as Amanda Ripley, uh, following a a hint from the Nostromo to find out what happened to her mother, and of course... Xenomorphs are involved. Of course, because this is aliens after all. So they suspend Ripley at the beginning and say, oh, you're crazy. Here, take this like dock loading job. So an unspecified amount of time passes and all communication from the Hadley Hope colony gets cut off. Obviously, we know what's happening and Ripley knows what's happening, but the corporation sends in a team of Marines to check it out. And of course they offer Ripley her pilot license back if she goes with them as a consultant. So she tags along. The Marines are played by Bill Paxton, Lance Hendrickson, Michael Ben, and they show up. Obviously things are, all the colonists have basically disappeared. Things are trashed. The only person that they can find who's still alive is a little girl called Newt, who's played by a Carrie Hen. And yeah, hijinks ensue. Terrible xenomorph hijinks. Jonesy does not accompany the Marines and Ripley on this one. Jonesy stays, stays, Jonesy stays safely at home. Well, I was going to say, if it's one thing that cats have, it's, it's a, a, protect, like a, a good concept of self-protection. But I've seen cats. That's clearly not true. How does this film compare to the first one? I, you know, and I, I know we have fun, right? We talk about white direct, white male directors, and how they're all the same. But, but frankly, Ridley Scott and James Cameron are two very different directors in some sense. How would you compare this one to the first one? So I was actually really surprised by this film, mainly because all I knew going into it is that people told me there was a massive genre shift between the first film and the second film. But I was also told that the second film was very good. In fact, a lot of people consider this film to be as good or better than the first one. So that was all I really knew going into it. I was really surprised at there is a genre shift, but it's not as pronounced, I guess, as I thought it would be, because James Cameron, for all of his faults as a director, has actually managed pretty well in this film to recapture the same aesthetic as the first film in terms of the sort of grungy space, like lots of gray, lots of black, lots of the same vibes as far as the setting and the special effects of this particular film. So there is a genre shift 
if we say that the first film is sci-fi horror with an emphasis on horror, this one is sci-fi action horror with the emphasis on action. But again, it still feels like it belongs to the same universe, even though it's not exactly the same horror vibes that we got from the first one. But there is still a lot of horror in it. So I actually found that even though the genre shift happens in this, it's a lot more seamless than I had first thought like I don't think that this was as jarring of a sequel even though James Cameron clearly is a different director and clearly has different priorities he actually got this film based on his so they wanted him to direct this film based on Terminator based on the work that he did in Terminator this film was actually really difficult for the studio to produce There was not a lot of interest in 20th Century Fox in producing a sequel. Obviously, Ridley Scott did not have a lot of interest in making a sequel to this film, but they eventually did get James Cameron on board, and he was interested. There also wasn't a lot of interest from Sigourney Weaver. James Cameron actually had to convince her that this wasn't just a movie that was being made for profit, that it was actually a story that he was trying to tell about this character, that she would have the same range that she had as the character in the first one and to be honest with you Sigourney Weaver is obviously the star of this film like she there was a discussion like six months ago on Twitter about how there's no female action stars and I was like excuse me Sigourney Weaver is here and like she is she is great in this she transforms from but the discussion was six months ago Tessa do you you mean right now you're like oh Sigourney Weaver or has Sigourney Weaver done other action well, she has done act- other action movies, but the point is is that people, I think, forget this franchise. I mean, they forget a lot of franchises when they say that, like Resident Evil and Underworld, etc. Terminator. Terminator, Linda yeah. Hamilton. So, like, I, you know, it's just, it's interesting because in the first one, I would have definitely said she's, you know, she is a badass. She's doing, like, all these things in the first one to survive. This one, it transforms her a little bit more into a classic action hero figure like she has a lot of ptsd from the first film she keeps having nightmares about you know having a alien inside her bursting out of her chest you know she has a lot of nightmares about other things but she really transforms all of that anxiety into a take charge attitude especially when she meets newt who is clearly supposed to be like a replacement daughter figure to her so instead of the cat in this one we have a little girl who she decides to take in and protect and I I think that that works really well like I was telling Sam as we were watching this I feel like there are movies like Alien obviously started a whole genre of film dedicated to sci-fi horror I actually think that most of those movies are more impacted by aliens than they are by the first movie because of its more action hero type of aesthetic. But it still has a lot of horror, still a lot of jump scares, still a lot of like gross out moments. It it does carry on some of the things from the first one into the second one, including, of course, the Weyland yutani like evil corporation type of vibes, the fact that they're more invested in profit than they are in the people of of Hadley's Hope or in the group of Marines who they sent to investigate. There's more emphasis on the pregnancy scares. I noticed that as well because obviously part of the xenomorph thing is like it's a horror pregnancy, right? We get a lot more of that in this film than we do in the first one, which is really creepy, especially because, you know, there's all this like adoptive motherhood type of stuff going on with her and Newt as well. Uh, I will also say too, the special effects of both Alien and Aliens really hold up. Like, I was very impressed by the set design. So Geiger, who designed the Xenomorph, was not involved in this film because he was contractually obligated to the Poltergeist franchise. And Fox was actually not allowed to even talk to him about this film at all. And he he specifically said that he was disappointed with the special effects of this film. But honestly, I think that they hold up really well. It's all like puppetry and hydraulics especially for some of the later sequences but I think that it holds up a lot better than the CGI monsters of other monster films that we see later like the aliens in these films the xenomorphs are still terrifying and they still look a lot more realistic I think than computer generated versions now Tessa do you know the uh, possibly apocryphal story of how James Cameron pitched aliens no okay 
this is again possibly apocryphal, but apparently he all he did was walk into the pitch room, write alien on a whiteboard, and then put a dollar sign after it. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah, but you you hit the nail on the head about this really being a an action horror. The uh, people who say that this movie is an action movie are either doing one of two things. They're, they're trying to be like me and convince my wife, Sarah, that she won't be scared when she watches it. Or they're trying to do the Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Yes, you're technically correct. You're, you're not that uniquely clever, though. I will say, too, I can't speak very much about the ending of the movie, obviously, and I don't want to. Like, you should watch this movie, and you should, like, go into it pretty much as cold as you possibly can, which is what I did. There's some really iconic cinematography in this. I have to shout that out as well. But there are some moments at the ending of the movie where I actually laughed, but not in a, like, not in a this is bad sort of way, but in a, like, there's actual humor sort of threaded into some of the sequences, the action horror sequences at the end. And it's done in a way that's super clever, but not like overwhelming to what's happening, which I just thought was great. So it's, it's funny. Like you said, he is capitalizing off of his work in Terminator. And I definitely think that this, what he does here carries over into the abyss which again, I have not seen in close to 30 years at this point. And then into uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Obviously after that, with True Lies, he goes in a completely different direction. But I think that Sigourney Weaver is in many ways the, the roadmap. Now I can't speak to Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio in The Abyss. And yes, I had to look that up. Fun fact, she also plays Maid Marian in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. But you can definitely see this Ripley in Linda Hamilton's uh, Sarah Connors in uh, T2. So, would you recommend this movie? Yes, 100%. I do recommend that you watch the first one first, obviously. I think you have to in order to completely understand Ripley as a character and sort of her arc in this particular film. I also recommend that you watch the director's cut. As I said, I don't actually know what was cut out of it for the theatrical cut, but after watching the director's cut, I just don't see, I don't see anything that could have been cut in this film. So I, I really recommend that you watch that version. I honestly, this is a lot higher on my list than I thought it was going to be. I was very impressed by this film And I'm willing to say, I don't know if I think it's better than the original, just because the original is so good, but I I am willing to say that it is one of the best sequels of all time. I I don't know if I've seen a sequel that is as good as this one. Terminator 2? Surprisingly, one of the other best sequels of all time. Here's the thing. I haven't seen Piranhas 2. (laughs) Jim Cameron's directorial debut. But, okay, name a bad James Cameron movie other than Avatar. Titanic. No. Don't know. Haven't seen it. So there you go. One day we need to actually have a discussion about director's cuts. It just seems like they are almost always better for some strange reason. We watched, when we watched Dr. Sleep... We chose to watch the theatrical cut because we thought it was going to be bad instead of the extended cut. That was a mistake. But we're not going to talk about that today. Instead, I have a different pop culture complaint. Today, we're going to talk about best of lists, something that we all enjoy. I want to start by asking both of you, what you think about best of lists, what their role in pop culture is, and then I have a list for you to talk about. Andy, what do you think about best of lists? Okay, let's talk about some best of lists, okay? We're going to we're going to discuss best of lists here, and this is not just an attempt of me to vamp while I actually think about what I want to say. Um Yeah, it is. All right. Best of lists have a few purposes. One, Their purpose is to start arguments on the internet. Mm. Yes. Two, their purpose is, I think, just to let people know 
about the things that they might have missed. I have always viewed best of lists as as that, not not uh, rankings of definitive quality, but rankings of hey, these things belong in this in this stratosphere with these other things. Okay, you might have missed these, you might have not heard of these, but they belong together. Can you think of a best of list that has had the largest impact on your life? That's quite a weird question. Yes. There actually is exactly one best of list that I always think of when I think of best of lists. Reddit user Squid5 has a list that they are continuously updating that is basically the best sci-fi and horror movies you haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. And just some of the more impactful films I have seen have been found via this massive, I think now six part list with 60 films on each part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That list. Tessa, same questions, I guess. The role of best of lists and is there one single list that has had the most impact? I don't really like best of lists best of lists. And the reason why is because anytime you have a best of list, you're making the authors making judgment calls, right? They're they have their own preferences or their own metrics for deciding what's at the top of the list and what's at the bottom of the list. I love that we're having this discussion weeks after we did our James Bond ranking, which I mean, I feel like we're just undermining the entire thing that we just did, which I mean, I guess that's what we do. But like, the thing is, though, is that like best of lists implies like this is this is a definitive ranking. And like you said, Andy, it just causes arguments on the Internet because everybody has different different things that they value, different things that they like. You know, like when we were doing James Bond, like we value the James Bond movies that don't lean so far into like the wacky camp that the Roger Moore movies do. Whereas Elise and Nigel value that a lot more, which is the main source of contention of most of our arguments during those episodes. I prefer starter lists. Like, here's your starter's guide. Or here's like your, here's some, you know, like your Nisi Shaw's starter's guide to African-American black science fiction is probably the one that I think of the most because it's not the way that they have it set up is not this is the best of or this is a definitive ranking or anything like that it's just like if you have not read a lot of black science fiction here are the basics here are the classics this is what you should be reading and i appreciate that i like the approach of here is maybe something that you haven't gotten into here are some places to start i feel like that's a much more friendly and approachable and less definitive version of the best of list ideas so basically you as an academic are saying hey the lists that give you the the canon are are the best no that was the point nisi shawl's list is about books that don't make it onto the canon wait 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 okay okay now 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 this is a serious question for me i thought like the canon were like the thing the things that you should start with no well i mean yes i guess you could view canon that way but i actually kind of reject the idea of canon basically because it is a best of list. <laughs> but like, I I just don't think that you should say like, this is, this is what you should read in order to understand the world or to understand literature or whatever. So I guess if the canon is a best of list, I would prefer a starter's guide perhaps to other genres and things that I haven't read before. The, the canon works best if you retitled it as best books by dead white dudes as determined by soon to be or currently dead white dudes. Like if you do that, it actually works much better because, and and I don't think we're undermining ourselves because there's a difference between making a best of list and saying this is a best of list and saying this is a definitive best of list. For example, AFI back in the late 90s, came out with a definitive list of the 100 best American movies. And it was so definitive, they had to fix it 10 years later. You see, so there's a problem with that. Of course, the AFI list is probably the most influential for me. High Fidelity, the Nick Hornby book, is is basically a treatise on top five lists and how flawed they are. 
There's several of them. Rob, the main character, his top five favorite films are Blade Runner, Cool Hand Luke, The First Two Godfathers, which will count as one, Taxi Driver, and The Shining. He ranks his girlfriends using the criteria of how bad the breakup was. He, but the, the best one, oh, he actually does, um, his, his two co-workers, Barry and Dick, make a top five songs about death as a tribute to Rob's ex-girlfriend's dad who dies. It is Leader of the Pack by the Shangri-Las, Dead Man's Curve, <laughs> Jan and Dean, Tell Laura I Love Her by Ray Peterson, One Step Beyond Madness, Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot. Now, <laughs> I have to tell you that um, this list is objectively wrong, which is, of course, a joke because it's not objectively wrong. But I think it's wrong. I would give you the first three songs on that list. Leader of the Pack, Dead Man's Curve, Until Laura, I Love Her. But no top five list about death, especially if it's teenage death songs, is complete without J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers' Last Kiss and Skeeter Davis's The End of the World, which are great songs. There's also a big joke where Rob does his top five um, side one track ones, and he says, uh, smells like teen spirit, and Barry throws a temper tantrum. It's so well done in the movie by Jack Black. He just starts screaming at him. Why don't you just say part one of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony if you're going to be that obvious? So how is it handled in the uh, TV series? They don't really do a lot with it just because it's so much of a better show. But I am here to talk to you about a best of list that is a best of music list. Pitchfork reviewed by, by score. I'd like to tell you it's not a pitchfork list. But oh, Andy, no. it is. Pitchfork just released, this is hot off the press, the top 200 albums of the last 25 years because, and this is true, if there's one group of people who is more qualified than anybody else to rank albums, it's clearly Pitchfork, who you might remember two to three weeks ago, it's been over a month by the time this episode's released, released a list of about 20 albums that they're going to re-rank because they were wrong to begin with. Yeah, these guys. Definitive list. Are you ready for the top 10, Andy? I just want you to let you soak this in. Here are, oh. according to Pitchfork, the top 10 albums of the last 25 years. And we'll go in reverse order. We'll make it a countdown. At number 10, we have Jeff Tweedy and the boys at Wilco from, with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. All of your hipster friends were listening to this. Number nine, Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid, Mad City. Your hipster friends weren't listening to this because they hadn't discovered Kendrick Lamar yet. Number eight, The Strokes. Is this it? If you're as old as I am, all your hipster friends and every single girl I knew listened to this. Number seven, Arcade Fire. Funeral. You really are seeing a trend here, right? Number six, Frank Ocean. Blonde. Number five, Kendrick Lamar. To Pimp a Butterfly, which is when all your hipster friends discovered Kendrick Lamar. And coming in at number four, Radiohead with In Rainbows. God. Okay. Oh, you're going to love where we're going from here. At number three, there is the mad genius himself, Kanye West, with my beautiful, dark, Twisted Fantasy, which is, I will give you four of this top 10. This is one of them. The other one is at number two, Radiohead. Okay, computer. You have, a, you have an, any idea of what they're going to say the number one album is? I'm, I'm afraid I do. What is it? I'm, I want to hear it. I'm afraid it's not Real Big Fishes. Everything sucks. It is not. It is Kid A. By Radiohead. That's right, friends. Three Radioheads in the top ten, two Kendrick Lamars, and a Kanye West in a pear tree. And no female. No artists. women. No women, except uh, the, the women in Arcade Fire, I guess. I do have one point here, because I, I did I did just look this up. Yeah. Uh, I, I do have one point. This is not Pitchfork's ratings. This is the... Ratings of Pitchfork's readers. 
Yes. Okay. I just I just really want to bring that clear. Uh, the editorial staff did not pick these. These were the readers, and of course, that makes a lot more sense, and it makes it makes so much more sense, in fact, because Fiona Apple's album is not up there. Can I ask you a question, Andy? Yes. So in the Star Wars, right? Mm-hmm. In the Star Wars, right? When the stormtroopers are like mm-hmm. trying to murder people, but are exceptionally bad at it because they have bad aim, right? Right. Who do you blame for that? Is it the individual stormtroopers, or is it like the Galactic Empire, like Tarkin? Vader, the Emperor, like who do you ultimately blame for the bad things? Real answers only. I would like to point out that if you read down the list, the first solo female artist you get is number 17 with Lana Del Rey, Norman fucking Rockwell. Which even isn't the best, Fia. God damn it. Like, that's not even the best Lana Del Rey album. Yeah. Yeah, you're telling me there are 16 albums. Before you get to the first female solo artist album, and that's the one you pick. So one of the big problems with a with a best of list, and we'll move on after this, I promise. It's what we like to call the recency effect. Which, okay, if you think Fetch the Bolt Cutters is the best Fiona Apple album, I have some I have some news for you. She has four more, three of which are arguably better. Arguably. Also, at number 13, Kanye West's Yeezus album. And as I was yelling at Tessa the entire time she read this list out, literally every album that came out before Yeezus is better than Yeezus. I, I want to, to point out one thing here. I yes. I do think that uh, Tom York is one of the like readers who voted. Well, that's how you explain Moonshape Pool being on this list somewhere else. But the Eraser, Tom York's solo album, is nowhere on the list. So, I don't know. Maybe Johnny Greenwood is on the making the list. This is bizarre. I, I'm, I'm enjoying going through this. But yeah, all Fiona's apples are up here. Yeah, but Fetch the Bolt Cutter shouldn't be the, the, the first one. And I'm not sure that Extraordinary Machine's on there at all. Andy. Yes. Let's move on. Let's move on. Okay. Sam, what what did you what did you do this week? I read a best of list. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. Hold on. Go ahead. All right, Sam. It says here you did Resident Evil. Yes. Which means I officially win Monkey because I know for a fact, Sam, I know for a fact that you did this last year, which means you accidentally did the same thing twice. Which means I win. You know... I win. There are movies that I have watched a second time and only realized halfway through that I've seen it before. But this is Uh-oh. not one of those instances. I... Oh, f- wait, 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 yeah. wait. Movies? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh? Why, why are you talking about movies, Sam? Well... This is the video game Resident Evil. Well, Andy, I don't know if you knew this, but back in 2002... They began a multi-film franchise based on Resident Evil. And so, what I watched today is the first in that series, 2002's Resident Evil, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson and starring Mila Jovovich. Wait, so just to be clear, then, this means I did not, in fact, win Monkey yet. No. It's always good to have goals, Andy. Yes, it is. It's always good to have goals. Okay, so so what? They just turned the the silly video game from a mansion into a movie with uh with, with bad camera angles too. Is this a found footage movie? Well, Andy, it's kind of a funny story. You see, it all started when George Romero made a commercial for one of the video games. And they thought, hey, why look a gift horse in the mouth? Let's just adapt Resident Movie. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Why don't we just adapt Resident Evil into a movie? And so 
Romero was involved. There was a script written. Jill Valentine was going to be the main character. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Kirsten Dunst. You know, like, you get the idea, right? But it was too violent, too nudity, too that. And it eventually gets shelved. Now, Andy, I, I know you also know that video game adaptations usually aren't very good. Sometimes right. you have a war crime like Super Mario Brothers. Other times... An amazing movie. Yeah. <laughs> Com- I mean, it's probably going to be even better once they do this new one. So it'll it'll age well compared to that. But Dennis Hopper playing Bowser... Chris Pratt? Dennis Chris Pratt Hopper is Mario. playing Bowser is a treat. But... But, you know, other video game adaptations like Mortal Kombat are just, eh. And I mentioned Mortal Kombat specifically because Paul W.S. Anderson directed Mortal Kombat. He also directed Event Horizon, which was a much better movie. But then again, that's not difficult. And so he eventually... Wait a minute. He decides... The dude who did Magnolia? No, Paul W.S. Anderson. Not Paul Thomas Anderson. Big difference. Aren't they the same? They are not. Oh. So. Is this an Alucard situation? Did he just like change his initials? Good Lord, no. (laughs) That would mean there was a time, if that was true, this one person, this Jekyll and Hyde, if you will, situation, his Jekyll self was dating Fiona Apple and his hide self was dating Mila Jovovich. Wow. <laughs> wait, That's wait, wait. Too much. I, I need to know. Has has anyone ever seen them in a room together? <laughs> Probably not. Anyway, Paul W.S. Anderson said, you know what? I really like the vibe of this series. Like, I really enjoyed playing the video game. But you know what we shouldn't do? is we shouldn't do an adaptation because they always underperform. And he would know that. So what he did was he wrote a movie that used the basic premise and some of the themes and ideas and a couple of sets, but wrote his own movie. And that's what we're talking about. Wait, okay, okay. I, but I, I, the point of Resident Evil is that there is a residence mm-hmm. that is evil. Mm-hmm. What's the setup of this movie? You see, Raccoon City, right? Which is the the thing from the series. Resident Evil 2, yes. yes. Well, Raccoon City is referenced in the first one as well. You might I, I oh, know okay. this because I in fact played it last year. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so underneath Raccoon City, unbeknownst to its populace, is a center for scientific research named the Hive. That is run by the Umbrella Corporation. In the film's beginning scenes, you see things go horribly wrong. You see that there is this weird thing that's probably a virus, which it is. It's called the T-virus. And the center for research is run by an AI that we later learn is called the Red Queen. So that's, that's like all the prologue of the movie. We cut to... Andy, the mansion. The mansion turns out to be an access point to the hive. That's how we get there. We cut to Mila Jovovich passed out in the shower, waking up going, what's happening? She lives there with a guy named Spence. In the shower? Yeah, in the mansion with a guy named Spence. She cannot remember anything. She is soon joined by a cop who has some unknown providence. And a bunch of commandos who want to get down to the hive. So there you go. Movie. One of whom is is Michelle Rodriguez. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Okay. uh, This this sounds like it's certainly a setup for a movie. It sounds like it might be related to Resident Evil. Uh, Uh Tell me, did this work? Did this plan to not do a full adaptation work? Um, I do know that there is... Multiple films in this franchise, so I'm assuming it worked wonderfully. Well, it, it depends on how closely you look. Um, it's really funny. The The cop is played by Eric Mabius, 
And it just... I do not know who that is. Yeah, it took me a while. And I just looked at it and I was like, that's a really thin, non-jacked version of the boss from Ugly Betty. Checks notes. Okay, that's who that is. Uh, So, like, if you've seen Ugly Betty, you know who he is. If not, yeah. Mila Jovovich is, is pretty cool. That was fun. In her I, red dress. I can't help but wonder if, like I said, they had Eric Mabius to play Matt. But you have to wonder how much the film would have been different if they had signed their original choice, Angel himself, David Boreanaz. Like, it'd be a completely different movie because he would have, I think, overshadowed Mila Jovovich. So I think this worked out the best it possibly could. Here's the thing about the movie. It is a tight hour 35 plus credits. It wasn't enough. What you have here is an underbaked film that relies on its action sequences. And it's, it doesn't really have a whole lot of jump scares. It's not really that. It's an action horror movie, not unlike Aliens. So it's not really invested in the jump scares. It's more invested in the action. The problem is you start to notice after the first third of the movie that we keep cutting scenes. And I don't know how we got from one scene to the next one, which I, I eventually realized they either shot a lot and cut a lot, which makes zero sense to me, or this script is just underbaked. Like I had to stop and ask Tessa, wait, how did this Matt character, where did he come? What? Who's the, What? Who are these coming? What? It's hard to know what you're not supposed to know and what they just did a terrible job of telling you. But other than that, it hangs together okay. I have a question here, Sam. Mm-hmm. If one had to gamble on yep. this, and the gamble being between watching Resident Evil, mm-hmm. Resident Evil Apocalypse, mm-hmm. Resident Evil Extinction, Resident Evil Afterlife, mm-hmm. Resident Evil Retribution, mm-hmm. Resident Evil the final chapter mm-hmm. or gambling on what just watching resident evil welcome to raccoon city the reboot mm-hmm. which one would you recommend well andy you might not know this about me uh-huh okay but i like starting at the beginning right because that's traditionally in a historical sense where you start mm-hmm. i try not to live my life like a Rashomon movie. Or, sorry, like mm. Rashomon. I, I like things to have, like, order. I don't know if you've noticed this over the last 18 months, but we don't have much of that anymore. So I, I cling to it when I can. I would say start at the beginning, because it's not a bad movie. Okay. What, 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 is, what is your recommendation here, Sam? Who should watch this movie? All right. Watch this movie if the idea of Resident Evil sounds like a good movie to you. I mean, that's, that's it. I would qualify. This is a qualified recommend. This movie has obvious faults. I enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to watching the next one. It's kind of, it's kind of I mean, Underworld is a better movie, Tessa. Don't, don't get mad at me. But if you'll recall when I watched Underworld, I said I'd watch the director's cut. I'd watch the sequel. I didn't hate it. I was actually going to ask you that. If there was a director's was cut of this movie, I would have watched it. Like, I, I don't think it would have been any better. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm zero percent surprised about how this movie went, but I enjoyed it. It was, it was, it was a fun time. Probably better than Piranhas Two. <laughs> Piranhas Two. <laughs> we need to watch Piranhas Two for the podcast. Apparently, apparently. Like next year we'll watch Piranhas too. All right, I'm holding you to that. Okay. All right, Andy, I'm not sure why you have written this first question here because I don't think this movie wrong? is universally reviled. I think most people really like this movie, but I'll bite. This movie is universally reviled, isn't it? And by this movie, I mean Jennifer's Body. Oh, oh, Jennifer's Body, the movie I covered this this week. Uh it was uh it was considered a universal bomb both by audiences and critics at the time. Megan Fox is the bomb. Maybe maybe at the time, but it's definitely become a cult movie and it became a cult movie fairly quickly after it dropped. I watched this movie last week for like the third time. 
what are you are you Tessa, are you gonna make me spoil the idea that maybe people are wrong sometimes? I mean, I, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, you said it it did bomb. I do remember actually the third time I watched this, which was actually the same day you watched it, Andy, completely unrelated. Was very strange coincidence. But I I did notice that when I looked like when I was pulling it up, that it said that the the Rotten Tomatoes score was pretty low. I think it was like 44% or something like that. Right, right. And then the audience score is even lower. Um, it's It was so not liked at the time that the, um, the Wikipedia page actually has two sections under critical response for the contemporary response and the retrospective response. Turns out people can be wrong. Roger Ebert referred to this as Twilight for Boys. Which is really not a good description of this movie at all. Like, that doesn't tell me anything about what this movie is. And anyway, anyway, who right? Who made this movie? Who's in it? And what is the movie about? Okay, well, this movie was directed by Karen Kusama, who I believe Tessa talked about with Girl Fight? yes. It's a very different movie than Jennifer's Body, but also very good. Mm -hmm. She also directed Aeon Flux, and one of my favorite uh, movies that will be on horror movies for uh, non-horror people, part three, The Invitation. This movie was also written by Diablo Cody, uh, famed screenwriter of Juno. Oh. And young adult. And, I did not know that. And uncredited writer of uh, Evil Dead, the 2013 remake. Yeah, Diablo Cody is an interesting writer, I will say. I like her. There's a lot of people who don't, who think her dialogue is um, overly written, but I think they're wrong. But yeah, Diablo Cody, this movie stars Amanda Seyfried, uh, Megan Fox as the titular Jennifer and Megan Fox's body as the more titular Jennifer's body. <laughs> Believe it or not. Uh, what, what? Wait, what is what is the word? Eponymous. There we go. The, the, the word for named after. That's what I was trying to this, find. This uh, film is, there. in fact, named after Jennifer's body. Played by right, right. Megan Fox's body. But, but, right, but exactly. Wait, but, but. It's actually named after a song that Courtney Love wrote called Jennifer's Body. Oh, is it? Yes, which plays, you guessed it, at the end of the movie. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Um Yeah, I I honestly I honestly did not know that. I don't know anything about Courtney Love. Courtney Love was more relevant in the early 90s and I was not cognizant of music in the early 90s. Anyway, this movie also has just 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 one a fantastic cast and even a crossover with Tessa's movie with a uh, a special a special cameo by Lance Henriksen uh, uncredited but it also has uh JK Simmons in a beautiful role uh Kyle Gallner from uh Veronica Mars in a great role it has surprisingly by Mario himself that's right Chris Pratt Chris Pratt is in this movie. A very young Chris Pratt. Oh my. The voice of uh <laughs> the voice of Patrick Starr from SpongeBob is also in this movie. Um it's 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 crazy. And this movie has a wonderful cast. Adam Brody. Oh, of course. Adam Brody as as um Brendan Flowers meets Pete Wentz himself. <laughs> The lead singer of a rock band that visits this town. Um, this th this movie was has so much star power behind it, and everyone's giving their all. And I just wow. Uh, so the 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 plot of this movie is that Amanda Seyfried plays a uh, Anita, also known as Needy, who is best friends with a uh, vulgar superstar cheerleader Gretchen Wieners-esque 
Jennifer, uh, from you know, from the title of the film, Jennifer's Body, who they go to a club, the or, or not really a club, it's a bar, uh, to watch an indie rock band. The bar burns down, and the rock band kidnaps Jennifer. Uh, something happens and Jennifer turns into maybe possibly a demon who eats boys. And of course that leads us to the excellent line later in the film. You're killing people. No, I'm just killing boys. Yeah. Um, Was it any good? This movie was awesome. It's so good. This is one of those movies where I don't understand how anyone who watched this can say certain things about it. And like call it like Twilight for boys. Like I don't, I don't understand. Okay, this is clearly Heather's and Mean Girls with a demon uh, by way of supernatural. This is, this is just a fun, fun movie. Holy crap! I don't get how anyone could not like this. So why do you think the movie had such a negative reaction when it came out? Okay, I I I have some theories. First of all. This movie is, was promoted as a kind of a, a super erotic thriller, uh, a super erotic horror movie with with Megan Fox, who was um, who was at the time uh, lead of the Transformers films, and you know all about it was all about sex appeal and oh uh, you, you know uh, oh women women sexy women killing people and. Also, it's a horror, and it's even better. It's a body horror. It's it's gross, and it'll scare you, and there's tons of jump scares. Um, this movie is not scary. I do barely get how this movie was called a horror movie. I would put it on the level with 90% of Supernatural episodes. I mean, it's a horror movie, but it's not a scary movie. It's more like a monster movie. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, so this this film was pitched wrong. It also came out at the wrong time. Twilight was at its, you know, zenith. It's uh, apex, and if you will. yes, yes, it, it was it was at its apex. But it just, oh my god! Like, like Adam Brody plays the perfect villain for this. The the gags of the gags that J.K. Simmons does in this are amazing. Megan Fox, I have respect for Megan Fox now after the Transformers movies. Like I'm like, oh, she she can be a nuanced actor. Yeah, it shocked me. This movie had negative reaction because because sexism. I'm gonna be straight. It's just sexism. Yeah. No, I agree totally. Uh, there is also a. I remember, I do remember when this movie came out, one of the selling points of like the eroticism is in this movie is the relationship between Needy and Jennifer. They even like make out at one point, which is, yep. I, watching it again though, I feel like that was really foregrounded. Like it's not supposed to be like a shocking erotic moment. No, it, it isn't. But yeah, it's supposed to inform their relationship and where needy is at that time. Exactly. Exactly. So would you say this movie is Sarah approved? Can you safely recommend it to people? So I watched this movie and I watched it without my wife, Sarah, who notoriously hates horror movies. I love this movie so much. I made her watch it. So I watched this movie twice. Uh, and yes, absolutely. Sarah thought it was brilliant. As she says, of course I love this movie. I love Heathers. There is a lot of Heathers vibes in this film. Yes, there, there, uh, there is a very clearly a I love my dead gay son uh, scene. Yes. Yeah, All right. yeah this is, uh, it's so good. It's so good and it's so funny. And the when when Wikipedia is mentioned, it's one of the funniest things that that I've I've seen in a movie in a long time. But also, I'm I'm gonna be honest here. There 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 is a a scene in this film that I just felt I saw and I felt heard and attacked. And the scene involves Kyle Gallner driving his beat up car, singing along to the screeching weasels cover of, I can see clearly now. I thought about you. 
I thought about you during that. And and doing hand flourishes in so much of the same way that when I was in high school, I did too. So bravo, Diablo Cody, for making me feel seen and also a little attacked. I don't want to encourage Diablo Cody for any reason. Anyway. So, okay. So I waited. I have three things. Let's hope I can remember them all. First, you already invoked this movie and her involvement with it or the remake of it, so I think this is really interesting. In a genre sense, this movie shares the most DNA with Evil Dead. It is, I mean, it's almost exactly the same pre- uh, uh, premise, but instead of a house in Tennessee, it's somewhere else. But but this is like... Minnesota, probably. Right, and, and Evil Dead's like an interior horror movie because it takes place in that house and the area immediately surrounding it. I think one of the reasons Army of the Dead is not my favorite is that it kind of goes away from that. But Jennifer's body, like, you know, goes exterior. So I think that's interesting. But it's still interior to the small town. Yes. In in that way it is. But it's like, you know, that's where the Heather's connection comes in for sure. Called Devil's Kettle. Like, that is seriously. That is such a brilliant. All right. So two, Megan Fox, right? I think most people would, would say that she is most well known for the Transformers movie. But I think. As of, you know, so it's been two, let's see, as of, by the time this gets released, about three or so weeks ago, I think Megan Fox took her rightful place at, as the queen of horror, because we have Jennifer's body and those pictures with Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> Bang. <laughs> Bang, zoom. And three, I really wanted to bust you on this, Andy. I really wanted to. And so I'm very, very disappointed that I can't because... On what? Well, the... the Andy, real fast. What is the title of Real Big Fish's debut album? The title of uh, Real Big Fish's debut album? Uh, I, I forgot, honestly. Everything sucks. Is it, is, is it not? No, it's Everything um, Sucks. Okay. That's what Wikipedia says okay. in Wikipedia. Is never wrong. Do you know what year Everything Sucks came out? Uh, like 92. No, wow, you're way off. See, if that had been right, I could have dunked on you. Everything Sucks came out in 95. Holes Lived Through This Album came out in 94. So I guess you're right. You don't care about it. Because it was before your time. I guess. Anyway. Tune in next week. <laughs> Andy is making us do stuff. I don't know much about what we're doing, but I think one of the titles is about swimsuits, I guess. It's the first in our series where we get to assign each other different pop culture things. Andy's going first, so next week is the first in our series, Andy Assigns. Yes, and and my joke is hilarious if you know what we're talking about. So we're just going to leave that for Cue next week. Cue the horror music. Yeah. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. What are you making us do, no, Andy? No, don't no you no, don't want to. It's a joke. Oh. It's a prediction. Oh. Well, wait. No, no, no. Oh, okay. Um, tell us about Odd Taxi. Yep. One of the things we'll be doing is the seminal, amazing uh, animated series Odd Taxi, which I will describe as uh, Tarantino doing Fargo in Japan, in in Tokyo. Animated. Yes. Yes. Animated. It, by way of Bojack. It might... Right, by way of Bojack. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot... No, that, well, I mean, probably, but there's a lot going on in that. I think your description is good, though. Yeah, yeah. The The description is very good. Uh, so, if you want to watch along, it's only 13 episodes. Odd Taxi. I, I promise each and every one of you will actually love this show. We've only watched the first episode so far, but, I mean... It's a real thing. Andy, where can we find you online? You can find me online on Twitter at Andy Noted. Tessa? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Swayla Tessa. Swayla is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, which is a podcast in which I and friend of the podcast, Nigel, read all 41 of Terry Pratchett's novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. You can find me online at Sam underscore Morris 9. And if the supply chain hasn't completely ruined everything by the time you hear it, 
by the time you hear this, the printed version of the new book in which I appear, Pearl Jam and Philosophy from Bloomsbury, will be available. Send us your thoughts about what we talked about today. What pop culture you crossed off your list lately? Best of lists? Pitchfork? Megan Fox? Not Machine Gun Kelly? Or anything else that comes to mind except Machine Gun Kelly? Find us on Twitter and Instagram, Billy Bob Thornton and Angelina Jolie. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Visit our website at monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes. It can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. <laughs>